Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and someone who thinks it may be time to get comfortable with complexity. You know, when it comes to healthy diets, there is so much information out there. Um, recently, I went to the library and I took out numerous books on uh, nutrition and health and wellness eating, and I was just shocked by the level of conflicting information. Um, eat carbs. Don't eat carbs. Eat more fat. Eat less fat. Uh, eat more protein. Oh, Americans get way too much protein. So how do we find our individual ways out of these dietary mazes? Maybe it's by embracing complexity. It's not a one-size-fits-all world. Life is complex. Our bodies are complex. And so on today's show, we're going to dive into the microbiome with Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health in the Associate Director and Nutrition Coordinating Center um, at the University of Minnesota, Abigail Johnson. Hi. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Abigail. Hi. Happy to be here. Great. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I am, by training, a registered dietitian and a nutrition scientist. So I did a PhD in nutrition uh, at the University of Minnesota. And after my PhD in nutrition, I entered the world of the microbiome. So I did a postdoc, um, a postdoc in bioinformatics, studying the microbiome. And I'm currently an assistant professor. And uh, so a couple of years ago, you guys did a study that got a lot of attention, including on uh, PBS. Um, tell us a little bit about that study. Yeah, so a couple years ago, this was right at the start of my postdoc um, with Dr. Dan Knights at the University of Minnesota. We wanted to answer the question, what should you eat for your microbiome? We were really curious. A lot of people were starting to study the microbiome, and we were starting to see um, in the scientific literature discussions of how diet might be influencing the microbiome. So we set out to ask, you know, if we just collect enough longitudinal data on people, would we be able to see conserved patterns? So for example, if we had enough people in our study who ate an apple on a specific day, could we then a couple days later pick up a signal for apple in their microbiome? That was what we were what was driving the study that we were planning to do. So what we what we ended up doing was we enrolled um, 34 people in a longitudinal study to collect um, all of the all of the information that we possibly could. And this was unique because nobody had really done this at this point. So we asked all of the people in our study to collect a daily microbiome sample. And so for those who are not familiar, the microbiome is the community of microorganisms that live in your gut. So this is essentially a, a poop sample. So we asked them to collect a sample for us each day for two and a half weeks. And over the same time period, we asked them to collect all of the information about what they ate and drank during um, those two and a half weeks. So we ended up with a big, dense data set on these 34 people where we had days of information about what they ate and a lot of information about the bacteria in their gut and how that bacteria in their gut was changing over time. And we could talk a long time about the specifics of what we found, but essentially what we discovered was that what mattered most for predicting how the microbiome was going to change was the foods that a person consumed in total overall. And less important was the specific nutrients within those foods. And we think that that was probably because we applied some new methods to, to look at, at food intake. Um, and, and what was really interesting was that within a person, 
or across the people in our study, we didn't find a lot of conserved relationships. So that idea that I sort of started with, like an apple having a specific signature that would show up in the microbiome, we didn't see that. We didn't find a signature for apple. And what we did see in a couple people was a conserved association between um, specific foods. If a, if a couple of different people ate the same sort of type of food, we'd see a specific microbe increase. But in other people, um, we saw that relationships were not the same. So they could eat similar types of foods and have a wildly different um, change in their microbiome. And we think that's because people have really unique gut microbes. Um, my communities of gut microbes are not the same as yours. Um, and what we feed our microbes probably differs based on the community that, community that is there to break down that food. Now, the um, the ramifications of this are really um, tremendous. Now, so so between you and I, we both have about 99.9% of the same genes. But our microbe, my, our, our micro communities are only about 80, 90% the same. Is that accurate? Um, I'm not sure exactly of the percentages, but there's a lot more variability with it, across people in terms of microbes than there is in terms of their genes. And uh, um, what's really interesting is that your microbes all have their own genomes, right? So when you think about the number of different genes that your microbes contain, that's about 100 times more um, variable than your own genes in your body. So you get a lot more variation because we start to think about those microbes as well as our own um, host physiology and genetic makeup. So, so let's slow down and just talk about what is the microbiome? Yeah. Um, so the microbiome depends on who you ask, but in my, <laughs> as, as I define it, the microbiome is the collection of the co of community of microorganisms. So archaea, bacteria, and fungi that live in your gut, as well as their genomic content. We study the microbiome by sequencing the gut microbes to work out who's there. Most of these um, bacteria, fungi, and archaea cannot be grown in a petri dish. So we use sequencing technology to figure out who's there. So we, we often talk about not only the microbes themselves, because we have to infer their presence based on their genes, but we also think about their genes and their genomic um, potential to make enzymes and proteins. So, um, so, so this is a, a fact I picked up from a, a microbiome net. But anyhow, it's the, the microbes living on and in the human body outnumber human cells. What does that mean? Yeah, so that might be a, a slightly like, so there was for a while in the literature, there was this idea that there were more microbes um, on and in us than there were um, cells of the human body. And for a while, the number was three times, 10 times more microbes. The most recent number is about, there's about even numbers. So for every cell in the human bo body, you can assume that there's also a microbe, um, like equal content. And they're mostly isolated in your gut. So the, your gut is, is filled with bacteria. Some of them are on your skin, some of them are on your mouth, some of them are um, living on your gums by your teeth, but the majority of the microbes that you harbor live in, in, in your gut and primarily in your large intestine. And obviously we need to coexist with these microbes. We need yes, them to they, live. 
are absolutely, they're really important for us. Um, we are learning that they have massive um, impacts beyond their site of like where they live, right? So they can live in your gut, but from there they can interact with your immune system. They can also produce um, specific compounds that we are incapable of producing. Uh, there are some things that your gut makes that are potentially important for your health, and those things can have impacts far away from the site of where the bacteria itself is making that item. And then there are things that if you consume them, um, they're not, they, they're broken down, but they are broken down by the bacteria in your gut and have a positive effect. So the, the interesting one that we often think about in the gut microbiome world is fiber. So we as humans eat fiber and that fiber is not broken down. It goes through our stomach and through our small intestine and it makes its way to the large intestine. In the large intestine, the bacteria can break it down. We lack the enzymes to do it. And when the bacteria break it down, they produce what we call short-chain fatty acids, acetate, butyrate, um, for example. And those fatty acids um, or short, small compound molecules, they feed our gut cells. So they help to keep our gut healthy. And they also enter the bloodstream where they appear to be correlated with lots of beneficial health outcomes. So we think that fiber is good for us, not only because it moves through your gut and helps keep things moving along, but it also feeds microbes and those microbes make beneficial compounds. So, um, but each one of us has an, just like there's not one healthy diet for all, there's also not just one way to have a healthy microbiome. Right. So um, there was a big study a few years ago where they enrolled objectively healthy people, um, hundreds of them. And they asked, of all of these healthy people, is there a singular microbiome that looks healthy? You know, can we look at a, a single microbiome and say, oh, just based on your microbiome, you must be a healthy person? Or do all of these healthy people have the same microbiome? And what they found is that there's no conserved, there's no singular healthy microbiome. The spectrum of healthy microbiomes is vast and broad, and it contains lots of different potential conformations. So we haven't yet figured out what healthy is in terms of your gut microbiome. We're a little bit better at figuring out when a microbiome is objectively unhealthy. For example, if somebody gets a C. C. difficile infection or has been treated with a large amount of antibiotics and has a bloom of a single bacterium, and we could sequence your gut and be like, that's an unhealthy gut microbiome. But it's much, much, much harder and actually impossible at this point to just sequence a person's gut microbiome and say, objectively, that's a healthy gut microbiome. So we're going to take a break shortly. But when we come back, I want to talk about all the connections there are, because there may be connections between uh, depression and anxiety in our microbes, connections uh, with cancer, connections with longevity. And so how do we have a healthy microbiome when there's not just one simple thing to know, because we're all individuals? And so what is this, what is this new understanding of the microbiome? How is that... Um, how can that impact and how can we how can we be friendly with our microbiome? So we're talking with Abigail Johnson. She's an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota. She's also a nutrition coordinating center at the University of Minnesota. Um, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You're a 
Seward Co-op is now offering convenient self-serve and pre-packaged hot options and salad bars at both the Franklin and Friendship stores. Breakfast items available daily until 11 a.m. and brunch served all day every Sunday. Their weekly lunch and dinner menus highlight cuisines from around the world. They offer vegan, vegetarian, and gluten-free options daily. 95% of the ingredients used are organic from small-scale, local community food producers whenever possible. More at Seward.coop. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, um, and uh, with us right now is Abigail Johnson. She's an associate uh, assistant professor in epidemiology and community health. She's also the associate director of the Nutrition Coordinating Center at the University of Minnesota. Welcome back uh, to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about the microbiome. Um, and so um, what do we know? How, how does diet impact the gut microbiome? Yeah, we're we're really interested in this question of how diet impacts the microbiome. It makes sense logically when you think about all of the ways that you might um, affect bacteria that live in your gut, that diet probably has a big impact, right? You would, you would assume that the things that you put in are going to potentially change the microbiome. So a lot of research is um, at the moment focused on trying to understand just how much of the variation in microbiomes, so across people and within a person, can be attributed to diet. And right now, our best estimate is that about 20% of your gut microbiome variation is probably due to diet. Mm, that now low. That's, it's not actually as much as we would expect, right? Like you yeah. might think it's going to be much, much more than that. But it probably, um, you, you, you acquire your microbes somewhat randomly uh, throughout your life. So I have to sort of go back to birth to figure out where your microbiome came from. And the first microbial exposure that you get is as, a, as an infant when you're born. So we can tell right after birth, if we collect a microbiome sample, if a baby was born vaginally or by C-section. So the first microbes that you get are from your early exposures, either to the birth canal or to the skin of your mother if you're born by C-section. And after a while, those differences sort of disappear. But you can imagine as a baby is exposed to their environment, they pick up microbes. So over the first three months of life, there's sort of a slow development of the microbes in their, in their body. And then at around three or four months, when babies start touching things and putting their hands to their mouth, um, there's a really quick increase in the diversity of microbes that live in their guts. And then when you start the weaning process and you start the introduction of solid foods at around six months, you see a lot more variation and diversity showing up in the baby's gut microbiome. So that's sort of the first clue that food has something to do with this. But it's important to realize that it's it's also happening in conjunction with all of the environmental exposures that a, a child is is you know, facing right. all and, of the things so, that they play in the dirt, the, right. the playground, that kind and of I've thing. And I've heard that some people have been saying that, um, you know, children really need to be playing in dirt, especially clean dirt, because we need that to be healthy individuals. We need a healthy microbiome. And so that some people are not getting that exposure. Um, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what clean dirt is, but I think that good point. I mean, not not necessarily like dirt without um, like heavy metals or exactly or, um, things that we know to be bad for your health. But there's probably some amount of exposure to dirty things that is likely good for us. And there's evidence from um, children who grow up on farm envi- in farm environments, for example, or with and without dishwashers, having differences in allergy risk. And that might indicate that there's something about the microbes that you're exposed to through environmental exposures early in life that might help to um, teach your immune system what it should and shouldn't react to. So that's probably the main way that exposures to dirts and, and, and dirty things, if you will, um, so I, might I, impact your, your I guess the basic, basic question is how do, I, how do I help myself have a healthy, how do I help my microbiome be healthy? Yeah, it's a really good question. Remembering that we don't know what healthy is yet. There are some things that we do see across studies consistently. So people, we, we usually think of, right now the best marker we have for what is a healthy microbiome is probably a couple of different types. Okay, now, now you're breaking up a little bit. So, um, But before you're breaking up, you said that the best thing you know for a healthy microbiome is? It's probably the diversity microbes so the diversity many, of the microbes right how many different microbes that you have living in your in your gut can you know? let me see yeah so um okay so so the the i just want to make sure you can i'm sort of moving closer to a window i apologize no that's fine um, the the signal we see conserved across different studies is that people who eat more different types of fruits and vegetables seem to have more diverse microbes. And that aligns with a lot of the information that we know from epidemiological studies of diet, that diverse diets are generally good and diets rich in fruits and vegetables are also generally good for health. So the microbiome might be the mechanism through which eating lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of different fruits and vegetables um, and grain foods promotes health. Yeah, so this is from the My, My Microbiome, and that was the American mm-hmm. Gut Project, and it said mm-hmm. that people who ate 30 or more different plant types a week had microbiomes that were more diverse than those who only ate 10 plant types or less per week. Right, so in the American Gut Study, they um, it's a citizen science project. They ask people all over the world to send them, or at least over in, in America, and then they've expanded to the UK as well, to send them a, a poop sample in the mail and to answer some survey questionnaires. And one of the analyses that they've done is to divide their population into people who eat less than 10 different types of fruits and vegetables and more than 10 and then more than 30. And when they just looked at the people with less than 10 and more than 30, they find that the more diverse fruits and vegetable intake is associated with this positive outcome of of increased diversity in the gut. And more recently, a couple of groups have used methods similar to those that um, we've developed in, in my lab that look at diversity of the diet, and they see that diversity of the diet is associated with diversity of the gut. So, eating more different types of things is probably really good for your gut microbes. They, You can support a more complex community if you give that community lots of different um, starting points for which to eat. 
Um, and then with that, uh, the American Gut Project, um, one unexpected result was the detection of agricultural antibiotics in people who claim they haven't taken any antibiotics um, in the prior sample in the prior year. So um, can the antibiotics, um, and we know 80% of the antibiotics are used in our agricultural system, can antibiotics hurt our, our gut yeah, so antibiotics definitely have an impact on your gut. Um, if you go on a course of antibiotics, you can see um, the absolute number of bacteria in your gut will go down, um, at least for the time that you're being treated with antibiotics. And then after you come off of the antibiotics, in most cases, your gut microbiome responds um, and, and goes back to how it was before you were on antibiotics. So there's a lot of interest in working out, is there an optimal um, diet or set of environmental exposures that we should be telling people to um, at, when they have antibiotics to try to make sure that when they come off of the antibiotics, um, their gut responds and rebounds normally and looks healthy again at the end of the antibiotics. For most people, it does. It's not a big deal. Um, but we might hypothesize that making sure that you get lots of fiber and a diverse variety of fruits and vegetables um, could be a really good thing to do if you knew you were being exposed to antibiotics. Well, thanks, Abigail Johnson. We're going to take another break, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about diversity in the microbiome and, and how we live healthy and well, understanding ourselves as a complex, e complex ecosystem. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and we're, today we're talking all about the microbiome. And with us is Abigail Johnson. She's the assist. She's an assistant professor in epidemiology and community health, and she's also the associate director of nutrition coordinating center at the University of Minnesota. And uh, welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, a few years, I think it was actually ten years ago, there was a kind of a big study with fat mice and thin mice that made a big splash in terms of the microbiome. Do you want to talk a little bit about that mice study and thin and fat mice? and how it's related to microbiome? Sure. So um, I, I would argue that this study really launched a lot of the interest that we have today in the microbiome. Um, so these researchers took obese mice or mice who had been consuming a Western, we call it a Western diet, which is high fat and low fiber. And they took um, no biotic mice, which are mice that are born without any microbes. And they took the microbiome from the obese mice or the mice had been, who had gained weight because they had um, been consuming this high fat, low fiber diet. They put the, their microbes into the mice that were lean and had no microbes of their own. And what they saw was that after moving those microbes into those, those mice with no microbes of their own, those mice gained weight and they gained weight more than the mice who the same thing had happened to, but they had used the donor samples from lean mice. So this was um, really compelling. It demonstrates that just microbes alone, everything else held constant were enough to um, take a mouse and make it gain weight. Um, 
So, so that's become so it's been ten years. Why isn't there a yeah. fecal transplant for weight problems? <laughs> Good question. So they have tried. Um, there have been attempts to do this. There have been twin studies with a lean and an, uh, an overweight twin where they try to see if they can transplant the lean um, body type to the overweight twin. Uh, and and basically in humans, it's not working out as um, perfectly <laughs> as it did in the mice. So that probably means that there are other things beyond our control that are contributing to whether or not a person um, is gaining weight. It it's may not be as simple in a human model to isolate just the microbes and be like, that's the solution, that's the panacea that's going to solve the problem of weight gain. Um, but it has, you know, we do see when we look across populations, we see relationships between the microbes that um, different populations have and their propensity to gain weight. And um, it's a major area of research interest. How we change your microbes is still really hard to do. So people's microbiomes look like their own microbiomes over time. You can take, I could take a sample today from myself and compare it to a sample that I took from myself two, three years ago. And I'd still be able to know that those, that was my sample. Um, my microbiome just doesn't change very much over time. And neither does the majority of the populations. And so we're still trying to figure out how we cause a microbiome to change. You can you can do a fecal transplant where we take um, poop from somebody else and we process it and make it, you can put it in a pill and consume it. And those transplants work for a while, but eventually um, some of your previous microbes come back and grow back. So it's, it's hard to affect these changes through the microbiome um, in humans. Humans are complicated. You started this whole conversation by right, saying it, it, we're, we're complex and it's complex. Get, get yeah. over it. It's, it. Life is complex and it just is. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so, so how could the microbiome even affect um, weight? When I eat something, if, if I eat an apple and you eat an apple, our bodies process that apple differently. That's, that's basically what your one study is showing. So can you give some insights on that, that, that it really is personal between the way I eat and the way you eat, and that's because you have your microbiome and I have my own individual microbiome? Yeah, there are a couple different ways that this might be happening. Um, that one of the proposed reasons is that some microbial communities may be better at harvesting energy or releasing energy from foods than other microbial communities. So a person with a community that's really good at releasing energy from food could get more energy into their system from eating the same food as a person who had a microbiome that was more inclined just to pass things through without breaking it down. Um, so that's one potential. And we can look at that in, in our research studies. We can measure how much energy comes out in a person's fecal sample. And we can see that people who are, or at least in mice, mice who have specific microbes that are good at breaking down food, um, there's less energy left over in their poop. Um, so more of it is absorbed by their body and then there's more energy available to be stored as fat. So that's one potential like part of the reason. Um, other explanations are probably more complex. So you could potentially be um, breaking down molecules or you have microbes in your gut that produce secondary molecules that trigger cascades um, of different kind of biological processes in your body that speed up your metabolism or slow down the metabolism. Um, so those sorts of things are being investigated and explored. 
Um, but we're still figuring it out. We don't yeah, yet know there's exactly lot, why. But is it a, is there a real clear understanding that um, a, a healthy microbiome is a diverse microbiome? Generally, yes. Generally, yes. And is there any evidence that our microbiomes are becoming less diverse? Yeah, there is. So there's some evidence um, from studies of generations over time. Um, most of the early evidence has come from mice, because obviously they're easier to study to, to build these hypotheses. But you can take uh, a mouse and then have that mouse have babies, right? And then those babies have babies. Now, unfortunately, you're, you're breaking up again a little bit. So, um, but you were saying that one mouse, um, you can take that they're, the, the, mice, the mice babies are, are having less diverse microbiome guts. Yeah, based on what their grandmother ate. So if their grandmother ate a high fiber diet, um, her grandchildren will have a more diverse gut microbiome than if the grandmother was on a low fiber diet. Wow, that is fascinating. Now, uh, this is something from that American Gut Project, and if people want to go look at um, this detail, they can go to mymicrobiome.info. But um, it it used this name. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, H-P-Y-L-O-R-I. Um, but while it has a bad reputation, um, it, it, in uh, two or three generations ago, 80% of Americans harbored this bug. Now less than 6% of American children are host to it. And that may be one um, example, one reason why child obesity might might have increased in the United States. Interesting. I'm not familiar with it. So it sounds like H. pylori. Is H. pylori, the, is the yes. Yeah. Yeah. So H. pylori is often implicated in um, gastric ulcers, but I'm not really familiar with it in terms of its role in the gut microbiome and, and contributing to childhood obesity. So it's an interesting hypothesis. Yeah. And I mean, again, there's so much. Let's talk about some of the other ways that our microbiome affects our health and well-being. So there's a connection between uh, mental health, depression and anxiety and a healthy, vibrant microbiome. Yeah, so the, and there's um, an emerging area of evidence looking at microbes and um, stress and microbes and all sorts of different mental um, states. It's it's all very new. The world of microbes and mental health and gut-brain axis is very, very, very new, and it's early science. Um, but we know that your gut has direct connections through nerves to your brain. So the vagus nerve runs from your gut to your brain. So it's plausible that changes that happen in your gut could impact things that are happening in your brain. And um, a lot of people are very interested in working out how you might tweak those um, connections so that you could boost mood or make someone feel happier or resolve uh, clinical depression, things like that. And some people are talking about connections between the microbiome and longevity. Yeah, this is a really interesting area. You know, can you eat or can you change your microbiome so that you can live longer and live a healthier life? Um, we see differences in the oldest people in the population um, versus those who are younger. So we know your microbiome changes as you get older. We're still trying to figure out what it is about the, the microbiome that might be contributing to longevity. There's a lot, again, I'm sort of harping on this, so we still don't really know, right. but there's definitely potential. There's a, and the connections between cancer and the microbiome. Yeah, this is fascinating. The, the potential for many cancers to possibly be um, related to microbial origin, um, it's, 
it's it's probable that there are microbial um, contributors to cancer that we've yet to discover. Um, just like we have now got vaccines for specific types of um, cancers like cervical cancer um, that are caused by microbial insults, we could imagine that there's a future where as we start to understand how the microbiome is impacting other cancer risks, we could figure out which specific microbes we need to get rid of to prevent, for example, colon cancer or even cancers that are not in the gut and are somewhere else in the body like lung cancer or pancreatic cancer. Uh, Yeah, and then uh, diabetes, the connection between diabetes and the microbiome. Yeah, this is one that the um, there's a lot of interest in right now. There's some early evidence that suggests that somehow your microbes might change your response, your glucose response. So after you eat, say, a banana, most people you'd see a glucose spike. But for some people, there's not a big spike in glucose. Um, for some people, eating a cookie has a really big glucose spike. For other people, eating a cookie doesn't result in a glucose spike. And we think that glucose spikes might be bad for your health. Um, and it seems like some of what drives those glucose spikes could be contributed to the variability in your gut and the different bacteria that are there. So that's kind of one of the really big areas of interest right now in microbiome science, trying to understand what microbes contribute to how you respond to foods in terms of your glucose metabolism. So in the next segment, our last segment, I really want to go into, you know, what are the basic things we know we can do to have a healthy microbiome? But since you just said that, I also want to just tease out, what do you see as the future of the research going on in terms of the human gut microbiome? Yeah, I think the future is that we need big studies with repeated sample collection from um, big groups of people. So the next thing that we really need is like a study of 10,000 people where we're collecting samples every day for a week or two weeks that we can tease apart these signals that we're starting to see in smaller studies, um, but we haven't got enough data to understand. We're, you know, we're getting to the point where we need computers to figure this out for us <laughs> is where machine learning comes into play. Yeah, and then I don't know if I want to, but um, so a, a long time ago, when the, the whole microbiome, the, the, there was an article in the Economist magazine. It was the front page of the Economist magazine, maybe ten years ago, about how the microbiome and the emerging understanding of it is really changing what we think it means to be human. I mean, the fact that there we are more microbes than we are human cells, or or about the same number of microbes in human cells, to really understand ourselves as complex ecosystems living within complex ecosystems. Um, that's kind of a change from historically um, how we've seen health and wellness. Yeah, absolutely. And from my world of nutrition, everything we've studied to this point has focused on what we need, what's essential for human health. And the microbiome has flipped that on its head. All of our nutritional databases, all of our food labels, they contain information about what we need. Um, But if we're going to study the microbes, we need more information about the things that we don't consume that pass through that reach the gut. Um, and, and that's become a big focus of what I do is, is how we shift the um, conversation in our respective fields to incorporate this way of thinking. Since we have the same number of microbes as we have human cells, we should be giving them more thought. So Abigail, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about what we can do to help our community of microbes living with us and how we eat in a, in a way that's, uh, um, That's healthy and vital for all of us.
Seward Co-op is now offering convenient self-serve and pre-packaged hot options and salad bars at both the Franklin and Friendship stores. Breakfast items available daily until 11 a.m. and brunch served all day every Sunday. Their weekly lunch and dinner menus highlight cuisines from around the world. They offer vegan, vegetarian, and gluten-free options daily. 95% of the ingredients used are organic from small-scale, local community food producers whenever possible. More at Seward.coop. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland. We've been talking all about the microbiome. And with us is uh, Abigail Johnson. She's Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health. She's also the Associate Director of Nutrition Coordinating Center. Um, And so when we want to break, um, how do um, how give us some uh, general tips on how we can eat in a way that encourages a healthy microbiome? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I've laid down the groundwork that this is all very complicated at this point. But there are still some things, if I put my dietitian hat on, that we can recommend that across the board, uh, they, they are associated with a healthy microbiome. So at this point, what I focus on as a microbiome researcher, as a nutrition scientist, is eating a diverse variety of fruits, vegetables, and grain foods. So what this might look like is say you want to eat broccoli, for example. You can have a serving of broccoli that's just broccoli, or if you want to tweak it in a way that could be really good for your microbiome, you might change that broccoli into a broccoli slaw, and you could add to it some red onion, some um, red cabbage. You could put some um, dried cranberries in there. You could add crunch from an almond, And all of a sudden, your broccoli serving, still one serving of fruits and vegetables, right? But you now have four different um, food types, uh, different varieties of fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains in that slaw that, that boosts a number of different types of substrates that your microbes can digest. And then if you want to take it even further, you could incorporate fermented food. So we haven't talked about fermented food much um, at all, but there's some really compelling recent evidence that suggests that fermented food might also increase uh, microbiome diversity. And so to that broccoli slaw, you might add a buttermilk dressing that's made with fermented buttermilk, and that could really potentially help to be a, a way to feed your microbes. Um, you might consider if you're eating eggs, adding kimchi. Kimchi is going to have three or four different um, vegetables in it. And then it has that double whammy of also being a fermented food. So those are the types of things um, that I think we can be focusing on at this point to help your gut. Um, if you were to just ignore everything else and you wanted to have something to count, I know people love to count carbs or they like to count calories or they like to look at how much protein in their diet. I think you introduced all of those kind of concepts um, early on. The thing that I would count if I'm thinking about my microbiome is how many different fruits and vegetables am I getting in a week? 
um, and then how much fiber are they giving with the goal of getting um, a, a sufficient amount of fiber each day. So for most people, that's 29 um, to 35 grams of fiber, and that's going to help your gut microbiome have enough of the starting material that it needs to make short-chain fatty acids um, and other um, you're going to ex get exposure to polyphenols from your fruits and vegetables that are all probably going to have beneficial impacts on your gut. So that short-chain fatty acids really important. Yes, that's a signal that we see across the board in healthy individuals that having a higher production of short-chain fatty acids is beneficial. And that's something our microbes do, right? I mean, how, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, so our microbes take the fiber that we eat and they break it down into short-chain fatty acids for us. So they do the metabolism of the fiber to short-chain fatty acids. We can't do it. Fiber in your stomach just passes right through. Okay. And so um, uh, th there was a Nobel conference uh, they went to uh, about living soil. That was in 2008. But it said they said there, you are, um, you are what you eat is kind of an old, old saying, you are what you eat. But it's far more complex than that. We are also what our food eats. So do you think having food grown in living healthy soil could also be really important to our microbiome? Yes, I really do. Um, there's some interesting studies that people are beginning to do to look at the microbes that are not only on the food that we eat, but are also in the food that we eat. So you might be familiar, like every time we have an E. coli outbreak with spinach, for example, um, research has shown that the E. coli is not just on the surface of the spinach, but it can be within the spinach itself. Um, so like within the spinach vasculature, for example. And so that's a pathogen, right? We're more, we're more attuned to pathogens. But there's no reason that beneficial microbes, soil microbes, can't be doing the same thing, that they can't be within the food that we're consuming and on the food that we're consuming. So I absolutely think that there are possible relationships between the, the way that food is growing and the microbes that that food contains and then its impact on health. There's very little work done at this point that's kind of conjecture at this point from from my perspective as far as whether or not those differences show up in the human gut microbiome after you consume foods that come from different sources. Um, but there is strong rationale for why that might be. Um, and there is some emerging evidence showing that people who are gardening, who are getting their hands in the soil when they're growing the food, are also being exposed to like beneficial soil microbes. So that's one way that we might consider also um, improving gut health. Now, is there anything that we should avoid for our gut health? Uh, pesticides? Um, so things that we should try to avoid that we know? Um, as far as pesticides, there's not any evidence that shows that those at this point are harmful for the gut. Things that you might consider avoiding, um, there are some compelling sort of research studies that suggest that emulsifiers in food potentially impact the gut negatively. There's a lot of debate in the scientific literature about the impact of artificial sweeteners on the gut microbiome and whether or not those are impacting the gut positively or negatively. Um, but some of those food additives might be worth um, minimizing. However, you can't, you can't get rid of everything, right? We live in a world we have to eat, we have to enjoy the foods that we eat. So there's some amount of moderation when you're thinking about these things, trying to do your best to get that diverse variety of fruits and vegetables to possibly incorporate fermented foods is going to be 90% of it. And then whether or not you can minimize your exposure to other food additives, um, highly processed foods, 
that could be beneficial, but in the grand scheme of things, um, probably a minor player. Okay. Um, Abigail Johnson, uh, assistant professor, anything else you'd like to say? Last few seconds. No, I think just go out there and enjoy food. And if you can, feed your microbes. Feed your microbes. So eat lots of fiber, eat a variety of vegetables, um, and, and pay attention to the soil. So uh, eat organic if you can, um, and grow food, garden. Um, and looking forward to all we can learn about the microbiome in the next few decades. So thank you so much, Abigail Johnson, University of Minnesota, um, as- Associate Director of the Nutrition Coordinating Center and as- Assistant Professor. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you.